Hello, podcast listeners. This is Steve. Today's guest is Michael Abels. And I took a little bit of host prerogative, if there is such a thing, to explore something. Uh, Michael spent a time as a volunteer at Jefferson's Monticello. Literally, this is a guy with a PhD, many, many years in city government, literally pulling weeds on the farm. And he ended up publishing an article. First of all, you know, many of you know I'm fascinated with the, with the life of Thomas Jefferson, all of his hypocrisies, all the craziness. But uh, he took away from his time at Monticello some really good business practices that are very applicable to being a city manager, county administrator, or anybody in upper management. Uh, it's a little bit of a different podcast because we spend a little bit of time talking about what it's like at Monticello and some of the historic historic oddities there. Uh, But I think you're going to like this, and uh, certainly you're going to like Michael. He's a really good dude. Stay with us. Greetings, I'm Steve Van Cor, and this is the FCCMA Podcast, a service produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association, I'm your host, and each episode we interview a city or a county leader who's in a position to share interesting and useful, underline useful, insights into the operations of local government here in the Sunshine State. Our guest today is Michael Abels, um, freshly retired uh, from the city of Flagler Beach as the interim city manager, is now back in the land. Um, Michael, uh, thanks so much for, for being on the show. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You know, Mike, we've, we're on episode, I think, 125 or 126, and almost everybody we've talked to um, was in, enmeshed in some level in, in local government, and you certainly are no exception. You have a, a, both a master's and a PhD. You've been teaching at Stetson. Uh, you've done a number of stints as a city manager of the city of DeLand. Uh, clearly, whatever you did in Deland was perfect because Michael Ploy is now there since 2008. So clearly, he was standing on the shoulders of a giant. I think we can all agree on that. Thank you very much. You're I supposed I, to laugh I, at my jokes. comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'll, leave, I'll leave it with your analysis, Steve. Thank you, <laughs> and hope he doesn't listen to the show. Right. Um, <laughs> So, and I guess it's part of the rule that you have to be a Mike or Michael to be the city manager of the land. That's a little known thing. It's in their city charter, actually. Um, so I want to I want to talk to you about something that's a little different, but really applicable. So you published an article called Leadership Lessons Learned as a Volunteer at Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. And for those who've listened to more than five episodes, they know I'm a bit of a Jefferson it's hard to call it, say yourself that you're a fan of Jefferson, right? Because he was, you know, both the best of America and the very worst of America. He was a very cruel slave owner. Uh, he was very irresponsible financially. Um, but on the other hand, he did buy the Western half of the United States, States for a discount and did write those famous words in the Declaration of Independence. So what brought you from city government up to the land of tobacco farms and slavery? Steve, I'm a, I guess history is probably my second avocation, or if maybe now it's first. But I've always been fascinated by not only Jefferson, but the linkage between Je- Jefferson, Madison, 
um, and how the Constitution was formed and how it was implemented. It's just fascinating to me how that era, Virginia really was a house of the birth of the United States. If you look at the, the Washington, uh, Madison, Jefferson, uh, they were all housed within 125, 150 miles of each other. So I've always been fascinated with the area. And for two years, I had uh, I had a part-time place that I stayed in Orange, which is actually the house of where the, the town where Madison had Mount Pillar. Uh, that was his primary residence. And it's only about 25, 30 miles from Monticello. So I would commute on uh, weekly when I was in the in Virginia to Monticello and I was a volunteer at what they was one of uh, Jefferson's outlying farms called Tufton Farms. Uh, a beautiful, beautiful rolling. Yeah, pasture. we've all heard of Poplar Forest, which was his, his retreat, as if having Monticello wasn't enough of a retreat. He had another retreat, and then uh, Tufton Farms as well. And I know there's several other farms that he also owned in the outlying areas. Right, and this was all linked in to, to Monticello. Uh, you know, it's all adjoining Monticello. So he would, in the morning when he would get up, he would uh, get on his horse, and he would ride all the, the properties and there's a there's a hill right by Tufton Farms. And as I might, you know, I to, to give you an example of what I did, I was a, I was a weed puller. That was my uh, primary function as a volunteer at Tufton Farms. I would help uh, maintain the gardens. So uh, in the morning when I'd be maintaining, I mean, the weed gardens, puller, that's very a very lofty title. Uh, <laughs> was the work as reflective as the title? It, it was. It was, uh, you know, <laughs> probably one of the, the proudest moments of my my time is when I would pull weeds and I would look at the flowers after I pulled the weeds and I would notice the beauty of the flowers and uh, we would wait for butterflies to come in. And, and uh, so to me, that was that was glory. And uh, but Jefferson had a hill that he would ride up that was adjoining Tufton Farms. And in the mornings he would. Mount, he would mount the hill with his horse and he would sit there. And from there, he could see all the adjoining property that he owned. So it, it, I would, in the morning, I would look at that hill and I would envision, well, you know, there was a time that Jefferson would have been on that, that hill. And I said, I wonder what he was thinking. And uh, that, that absolutely en enthralled me, trying to, to think about during that time, if during Jefferson's time, I would have been a slave and Jefferson would have been looking down on me doing basically what I was doing as a volunteer. But then I would have been a slave. And I kept thinking, what was going through the man's mind? What was he thinking? Uh, how did he rationalize this? How did he justify it? Uh, and and I, it, that would occupy my thought processes. You know, I, it's my understanding of the number of books and I've read and, and lectures I've listened to that he was conflicted about it, but recognized that his amazing life uh, was closely and inexorably tied to that. I think he used the expression having a wolf by the ears. Um, you, you can't let go, but you don't like holding on. And uh, 
But I would also offer that, you know, even in later life, he was given the opportunity to, to side with the abolitionists and the people who wanted to move towards that. And he he was very much opposed to that. And uh, I don't know if it was his own personal economics or whatever. You know, we give we give Washington a pass in large part because he, he released his slaves uh, after he after his wife died. You know, that was in his will. But Jefferson never did. You know, he. And it was offered to free other people's slaves because they had to have a bounty if you did so. You had to pay for their release. Uh, he refused to do that. And so while we greatly admire Jefferson, I mean, the first five presidents were all his understudies, right? Uh, well, you know, obviously succeeding um, uh, Adams uh, all the way up almost to uh, Jackson. Um, and yet, you know, and what he did is he gave us individual liberties. He gave us the thought process about equality. But yet he also owned people. And it's just a, a an incredible conf, conflict and contrast and hypocrisy, right? At one level, the man who wrote, all men are created equal, or at least some people felt plagiarized, all men are created equal, but good, he put it into a nice document, was also the one who owned other people. It's it's just an amazing uh, series of hypocrisies, the very best of who we are and the very worst of who we are, right? Or at least were. Um, so... Uh, yeah, how, how the how he possibly could consider that moral damage that he was he was inflicting on those people, and how he could sit on that hill and then ride back to Monticello as if nothing was wrong, just it absolutely uh, is incredulous to me. I mean, how they how they how he could possibly see the moral damage that he was creating and not take action to correct it. Right. Uh, well, not, not, not just that, but to expand it. I mean, the, the nail farm, the nail factory, which yeah. he employed young boys um, employed has after the exact wrong word uh, was his attempt to bring slavery out of the fields into the, into the factories and horrible, horrible working conditions. And uh, so it wasn't just, him tolerating and he was trying to find new ways uh people will point to he was the one who put the you know the um restrictions on virginia importing new slaves as if that was a sign no he did that because he saw the valuation of his own slaves going down if we could get cheaper imports i mean yeah that's so horrific and disgusting um but let's let's shift to how this applies to uh local government <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but you wrote an article, Leadership Lessons as a Volunteer at Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. What were what were some of the lessons you took away uh, in observing what happened at Monticello? Well, as I mentioned, I, I was a volunteer at Tufton Farms. And the thing, one of the observations I made, I worked there during the pandemic. And at that point, Monticello was, was closed. You could not gain access uh, to the house or to the grounds. You could go to the, the shop and to the to the greeting area, but you could not go up onto the grounds. They, they closed. Uh, so I was amazed that of the staff that I was working with, their morale was extremely high. And I observed that and I would ask questions, but I couldn't get an answer, an answer that that made that I could tie with the high morale that I was witnessing to 
the conditions of which they were working under. And by high morale, I was I would identify that as um, individual employees were taking individual actions on their own initiative to take to correct problems that they were encountering at Tufton Farms. And I could ask them questions and they would individually, regardless of their position, take action to resolve whatever problem I noticed. And I was amazed at that. I said, you know, they're not following a chain of command. They have enough confidence in what they're doing that they are independently taking action. And by all appearances, the morale is extremely high. And I took that back to the, to the reception area and observed the employees there. And I, I ran into the same thing. Um, so I contacted, I had some dealings with management staff uh, and I asked them, I said, you know, what, what did you, what's, what do you think is causing this, my observation of this high morale? Am I wrong in what I'm observing? And being, I would, I would say, uh, they they did not really trumpet their own success. They would acknowledge it. That and there was really no identification that could be made to me on why this was occurring. So I did a little analysis. I would get their annual financial reports, and I would get their their. Uh, I watched through, you know, they had annual meetings where they met with uh, staff, the management would meet with staff mm -hmm. as well as the board of directors. And I was amazed at what I, what I saw is the first thing that happened that I observed is during the pandemic, they made a policy that no one would be laid off. They made a policy that no one would have their benefits cut. So what they did is they went into so this the is this is the paid staff, not just the volunteer staff that you saw. This is thing. paid staff. This is paid. This is the this is a staff that would have an impact on their bottom line. I, to me, you know, volunteers, we really benefited the bottom line at no cost. So you, uh, but the paid staff is who I'm really referring to, and the paid staff really went went and again from the management level supervisory staff down to the uh, line workers so it was everybody that that i observed and i, I was just absolutely amazed you know there was no grumping uh it, i i would work on the farm and i would be doing what fairly menial task and no one knew, even knew who i was or anything about my history so i would just listen and I did not hear complaining. I heard about things that we needed to do in order to make operations more effective. Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Let let me go do this. And very what, very what fostered uh, that. What fostered that kind of positive work environment? It, it, was it just the fact that hey, you, we're committed to you. We're not going to cut salary or staff. Um, or was there something more to it that? Because it sounds to me like they were empowered to do they their jobs down. without meddling by the by the superiors, which obviously delegation requires training and responsibility and a feedback loop. Was there something to that that was different that you noticed? Yes, Steve, and that, that's that's what I really got, got into the heart of. When I started analyzing what management was doing, 
um, I came to the conclusion that, that the, the basis, the foundation, was that they put employees number one. They put their staff as using the you know the common refrain that that we're a team. They acted as a team and they protected everyone within that organization during. And this is during the pandemic. This is when my, the the institution was closed. Uh, the and they what the management staff did. They went to the board and they asked that several million dollars be pulled out of reserves and that that money be dedicated to maintaining staff employment and staff benefits so that nothing would be cut. So that was the first thing that that happened. And you can imagine during the pandemic when all across the board, people were being laid off and benefits cut, uh, the first thing that the management staff Monticello did was maintain everybody at, and kept everybody whole. The second thing that I identified is they trusted staff. So the outlying areas, they delegated responsibility. This is your, they set goals. This is the goal that we have and you're going to implement it. During the period of time that I was there, I noticed that some of management staff from what I call the institutional staff from Monticello would come in and talk to the supervisory staff at Tufton Farms, but they did so as coaches. There was, you know, there was no direction. And and I tried to stay as close as I could so I could understand what was happening because uh, it was fascinating to me. The, the, so that was the second thing. They delegated responsibility because they trusted the people once the goals were set and it was known what those goals were going were were and the what i would consider the objectives understood they basically backed out and let, well you know let, it's, it's interesting because if you if you give once you've delegated trained and educated your staff and then once you give them the clear goal and understand what the purpose of a project is we're all aligned towards the same goal and we're not, you know, wandering around in the dark. What is that old expression? They treat me like a mushroom. They feed me crap and they they keep me in the dark. By It sounds to me like since they were communicating what the goal is um, and then empowering the folks, they and, and, uh, obviously there's certain things like weed puller. You don't, you don't have to be highly educated. However, I'm sure there's parts of it, whether it's agriculture, horticulture, uh, land management, whatever, flood management, it does require some technical training. So you're saying this, the second part of that is not meddling, but coaching and and, and inspiring as long as people know what the overall goal is. Well, and, and not only coaching, but to have the identity where the staff would understand that management was concerned about them and wanted to have contact with them to be able to talk about, is there anything that we need to change? Uh, because I heard that type of question asked, uh, is there something we need to do that we're not doing? And I was fascinated by that, that type of a question. So it was not just direction down, it was please give me direction up. Uh, and, and that was this, what I identified as a second vital element. 
Well, you know what I like about that real quick? What I like about that is, ironically, the opposite of Jefferson, which was, I'm your master, you're my slave, is that when supervisors recognize, yeah, you you have a different strata of responsibility, but you're not a better person. You're not, you're not, you're not the superior in all things that if you say, hey, how am I doing? Uh, You know, the old Ed Koch thing, you know, how, how am I doing? Uh, people are more likely to relate to you and understand you and you can have a better back and forth relationship. You know, it's like either a top down or more of an uh, egalitarian environment where, yeah, I'm the boss technically, and I have the, the, the title, I get paid more, but my scope of responsibility is different. It doesn't mean I'm a better person than you that I can't hear what you have to say because you're part of this critical team. I, I like that. I, I like the egalitarian nature of that management style. Yeah. And and the third thing that they did it really fascinated me and is they took extreme what I considered extreme risk. Uh, in in some sometimes when we get in a crisis situation we hunker down. We try to protect what our base is, our foundation, and by protecting that foundation, we take even more risk losing it. What they did is they expanded their operations into areas of which they could draw customers that uh, were not going to go to the house, what I call the house, uh, because you know that was closed. So the money that they received t- traditionally, they were losing a good chunk of it. And think about that, you lose your revenue base. And while you're losing your revenue base, you, ex- you expand your expenses by saying you're gonna protect your number one asset, which was their employee base. So that to me was absolutely incredible. But what they did is they found, they expanded those areas that they could, that could attract customers that were not going to the house, meaning they opened up a new kitchen, uh, expanded the, at the, as a visitor center, their kitchen area, and they expanded their gift shop. Uh, I don't know if you have notified or noticed or have observed their online uh, marketing through the gift shop. They've got really an incredible now, I believe, catalog program uh, where and and online uh, sales program through their gift shop. My observation was is that was really expanded and concentrated on during the pandemic. So they didn't just hunker down. They said, okay, now what can we do to offset the revenue loss that we're going to, we're going to uh, experience because of the, the pandemic. And so they moved into new areas and by moving into those new areas, they eventually didn't have to take anything out of reserves, nothing. Um, oh, interesting. So what they did is they took risks during that time to expand their operations, uh, expand their sales force online so that they can, you know, I've never been, I've never been to the website to buy stuff. Uh, just curious, it, it, a copy of the uh, replica of the letter to the Danbury Baptist. I mean, what, what, what kind of stuff are they, are they, are they selling up there? I think uh, they've got a, what I consider an excellent books bookstore. Um, they have clothes. They have what I call the the knickknacks. But if you're a, a Jefferson uh, 
fan, you would probably like some of the 1700, 1800 clothes that they sell out of the gift shop. Uh, it, it's really fascinating. So uh, I encourage everyone to check it out. Their, their gift store is has some very, and plants. Uh, we used to move plants from Tufton Farms over to the gift shop, and then they would sell those plants, flowers, uh, shrubbery. Uh, and, and one of the things that was interesting is, you know, Jefferson was such a horticulturalist. Uh, yeah, gave us the tomato. Uh, absolutely incredible horticulturalist. And he, you know, he kept diaries on it. There's the book, they have a book they sell through the gift shop. I believe it's like 700 pages long uh, of notes that, and, and plants that Jefferson had. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, he used to bring a lot of the, he brought a lot of stuff out of France. Uh, and I mean, he brought the American Heritage guinea hog here. He brought tomatoes, which people thought were poison. And I, I think, Mike, correct me if I'm wrong. Do I remember this? I think I bought Jefferson heirloom tomatoes. I don't know if they were actually, but uh, from the website that they, they sell tomato seeds. Yeah. That, okay. That's I believe that, you're that's right. I have, yeah. yeah. I'm I've concentrated primarily in flowers, but uh, yeah, my but, tomatoes did, did didn't make it at all. I got a couple <laughs> sprigs, and that was the end of that. I'm like, okay, yeah. I probably should have so, worn them. So, so is Steve. If you've not looked at their website for their gift shop, I encourage you to do so. I'd also, even though you can't experience it, they have developed. Uh, they brought in a French chef. Uh, and I presume that the, I haven't been there for a while, but uh, into their restaurant, they and they really concentrated on developing the culinary uh, attraction of what people could. If you went to the gift shop, you could go over and have lunch or you know a, yeah. a early dinner at the uh, restaurant. And they they had a French. They trained, as, as you know, uh, Jefferson was really big into French cuisine, and um, actually, you know, he took Peter uh, to France with him and trained him as a French chef. Yeah, so, and that was a condition upon his release, right? At some point, because yeah. after six yeah. months, while Jefferson was there, he could have left. And said, I'm free now because I'm automatically emancipated, but he... Yeah, I guess, Peter Hemmings, and so he he was a French chef and served uh, uh, French cuisine at Monticello. Yeah. And and so they've, they've done a little... And so th- that was the third area that fascinated me. So they, risk-taking, which is a, t- a tough thing if you're in local government because, you know, failure usually means you're exiting. Um so what were some of the other things you learned there that are applicable to uh, government management? Well, those were the three three primary areas okay. uh, is uh, that I that I concentrated on that I that I observed. And what I did, I wanted to confirm what I was seeing and what my conclusions were were correct. So I wrote that article that you that you referenced and I sent that to the president of the foundation. And I had her, I said, please, if you would, tell me if I'm wrong. If there's something that I observed during my time on, at Tufton Farms and during the pandemic, please tell me that I'm wrong. And she did not correct anything. So that's when I then published it. I sent it to the 
Public Administration Times online, and they published it. Uh, so I'm presuming that the conclusions that I reached in that article were correct because they were reviewed by uh, the president of the foundation. Oh, cool. And, and, and she, you know, like I, I Fuller wrote this. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> well, and I presume that, you know, she uh, uh, took a very critical look at the article. And it, again, I did not. It, it was not published until such time as she had a she reviewed it. And so I think she also had her because uh, it was copied to her executive assistant. So I think he he uh, reviewed it as well. So I presume that the, my conclusions had to have a basis of fact. Well, that's that's awesome. So I want to shift gears with you because I could talk about Monticello, Jefferson, his legacy, his legacies, his hypocrisies all day long because I just I'm endlessly fascinated with it. But I want to I want to I want to shift to something a little bit more pragmatic because I don't think we've had anybody we've referenced it. And here's here's a, a line you wrote, and and you wrote a summary for this podcast. I we could literally do four episodes out of this, or if not more. But implementing strategic planning processes tied to the city budget, and you know, a lot of folks have referenced it doesn't. It's not real unless and until it's part of your budget. You know, hey, we want better parks. Well, is it in the budget? We want to, you know, stabil stabilize our workforce because we're having too high a turnover. Did you increase your staff budget? You know, tell me a little bit about your experience and your principle guiding principles on linking your strategic planning to the budget. Well, it, if you do not, my opinion is, if you do not tie your your strategic plan into the budget, your strategic strategic plan is only a dream. Um, and so what we tried to do or what we did do, uh, and is still being carried on by the, the current city manager in Deland, uh, Michael Ployce, is the major strategies that we developed within the plan were all referenced within the budget. We carried them straight into the budget, and then they were identified by action steps in the budget that and with dollars associated with with those action steps uh, that would tie in again back into the strategic plan. And if we could not fund it, which which occurred, you know, during the recession, we could not fund a lot of things that we we hope to do. Uh, I'll give you an example. Historic preservation. Yeah, I was going to say, just say, give me an example. A historic preservation was one. How much money the city would put into various areas of historic preservation. Well, historic preservation uh, was frozen during the recession, um, and this this is back in the you know two thousand eight time period. So we referenced that in the budget. Said you know, the the action step or strategy that we had in the strategic plan about protecting historic and enhancing historic preservation was in the was in the strategic plan, was carried into the budget, but then was referenced in the budget as not being able to be funded uh, this this particular fiscal year. And then if it, it in subsequent fiscal years, if money became available, it was 
then there would be money allocated to it. So the important thing was, is it was understood that we still had that as a, as a strategic priority, but it was a strategic priority in lesser importance than other priorities during the funding process when funding became restricted. So that allowed people to understand, they allowed the citizens to understand, yes, the city maintained that as, as a strategic priority, but it could not be funded. Uh, and that, and it was specifically stated it could not be. So I hope that gives you some answer. Well, it does, and it, but it also says there were other priorities that were higher priorities than historic preservation, right? One, paying our debts which, you know, is an unstated priority, but it has to be there, right? Second might be not raising taxes during difficult economic times, another priority. So if we say something is a priority, but don't fund it, 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 to your point, I think it's more of a wish than a plan at that point. You know, we have to live our values. And if we say we value, to to continue to use your example, uh, historic preservation, but don't fund it, is it then not really a priority? Well, it, it is a priority, and and it's but it's not a paramount priority such as police, fire, sometimes parks, and you're looking at total quality of life. Right. So, so public safety would be a higher priority than that. Be a higher priority, and so yeah. you fund you fund as the money is available. But if your your revenue base is being uh, restricted, contracted, then you have to prioritize all your strategies that you have, your your strategic priorities have to be in priority order. And you may not be able to adequately fund all of them. No, and I like what you said about Monticello. When Monticello said, our priority will be protecting our staff. Okay, so well, if we have to dip into our reserves, we have to take risks to expand our operations. But our priority is protecting our staff. And then you live that. And I think what you said earlier was that that created a sense of, wow, comfort and thanks and empowerment by the staff, but they lived their priorities, right? They took chances and they they said, well, they didn't say our number one priority is never to dip into our reserve fund. You know, it's a rainy day fund. Well, guess what, folks? It's raining today. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think I, I hear what you're saying, Mike, but I, I think I want to disagree with you just a little bit, because if something's not funded, it's it's a priority, but it's a low priority. Can we can we agree on that? Oh yes, absolutely. Okay. All right. But but the, you know one, and I think Steve, where I would go with this is that a strategic plan to be effective has has to have citizen input and citizen buy-in. Where those strategic priorities came from is a series of meetings with the community where historic preservation became visible as a public need. Uh, and once it became visible as a public need, then the decision is, where does it fall in line with other priorities? Police, fire, parks and recreation, public utilities, you know, whatever, whatever may. Right, keeping, keeping the lights on, <laughs> yeah. keeping homes safe, you know, putting out fires, uh, all those have to be first prior, first year priorities. And then, and there's a ways, obviously, there are things you can do for historic preservation that are not budgetary or, or other areas, but, you know, you have to put your money where your mouth is, right? 
Right. And it, but that doesn't make it less of a priority, uh, it, you know, or doesn't, I shouldn't say less of a priority. It does not negate the fact that it is a priority. It's just not the same priority as other functions and other responsibilities of the city. Okay. So, any so any other examples of that? I'm sorry. Guidance you can give folks about linking your strategic priorities to the budget. Well, the main the main area that I would talk about is that it's got to be physically present within the budget, meaning that your budget, the way it's constructed, has to be constructed so that the strategic priorities that you have set, meaning whatever it may be, uh, are then carried forward and identified within the budget. And then as far as a program, for example, it would be in your police uh, fire for public safety, as an example. Uh, for parks and recreation would be maintaining expansion if as a possibility of your parks and recreation system. Um, and that has to match what you have put in your strategic plan so that citizens can take both documents, lay them side by side and see the same wording in both and see how the the budget then appropriates funds that go into meeting programs that fulfill the strategic priorities. No, and and those priorities are critical because, you know, on one hand, if you say we want to be an education hub, then you need to be investing in uh, lower cost housing for educators. You need to be doing things to inspire and encourage uh, education institutions to move to you. But on the other hand, if you want to be a recreation hub and you say we want world-class recreation, we want to build a baseball circle so we can have tournaments, we want to have Beach volleyball nets set up, you know, A, B, C, and D, those all have to align. So you have to pick, sometimes you have to pick one over the other. You can't be all things to all people at all times. Uh, and, and also keep taxes low, right? Uh, we're going to do all those things. I, I see many communities, we want to, you know, we want to have really world-class schools, but they're not willing to fund world-class schools. They're, they're we're saying we want to do this, we want to do that, but they're not aligning with the budget, which is difficult, right? Because you're given so many dollars and you have to take care of the things that you have to take care of, your debt obligations, keeping the lights on, keeping some of the core fundamentals uh, in place. And then after you take care of that, whatever few shekels you have left over, then you can kind of uh, ascribe those to those other new and growing priorities. Well, one one thing too, I, I believe that relates to this is that strategic planning is very often developed as what I would call goal setting, which it's not. Uh, strategic planning has must involve citizens very deeply in the identification of what the prior, what the strategies are going to be, what the mission of the city is going to be, and very often, I think, in more and more, what we're we tend to do is we get so uh, harried by time and so pressed by time that we turn strategic planning into one day workshops. And that's what they're not. Uh, it really to be, to be, I believe, effective for its intent, it requires to have a process of time where you involve citizens in helping design what the strategies are going to be and the priority of those strategies. So what you're um, saying is goal setting comes first, then strategic planning is a means to achieving those goals. 
I would almost reverse that. Oh. Uh, I, I would say strategic planning comes first uh, and then goal setting becomes the way that you implement the strategic plan. Give me a little bit more context on that because I'm, I'm still I'm still inverted. I'm thinking I want to become a world class you know tourist destination. So what's my strategic plan to get there? You're saying do your strategic plan first and from there you set your goals. Right. And let's let's take, for example, let's just use what you just mentioned. If you want to become a world class tourist destination, um, well, that's that is your long term strategy. Uh, your then what what is your how do you carry that out? Um, how do you and, and how do you carry that out? How do you implement it? So then you set goals and then objectives to follow to carry that particular strategy out. And the strategy, I, I would presume, is then designed to accomplish what you believe your vision is uh, for the for the city. You know, you don't want to be a world class tourist destination just for the you know just because. I would presume that what you have done is you want to become a world class uh, tourist destination because you have a vision for the city of being, say, the. A, Comparable city to Rome, as, as an example, or, um, you know, we want to be an historical destination where all people throughout the United States visit to appreciate the, the history of the 18th, 18th century. Well, and to your point, though, uh, either Monticello would be there, but DeLand has an incredible historic downtown. And so you say we're going to prioritize that downtown as a tourist and visitor destination. And so then, so you're saying that would be your, your part of your strategic planning and the goals underneath that would be to renovate the downtown right. street, to put in historic street. Streetscaping. Okay. Right. I get it now. Excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, Mike Abels, I told you it would only be about a half hour to 40 minutes, but we are way over time. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, uh, you know, we, we, we I'm going to put, I want to challenge you with one final question. So you're, you're now living back in the land. Is that right? Yes. Yes, I do. All right. So you're like, a, I, I've never left the land. I've always been here. I just, oh, so you use it as a hub. Okay. Yeah. I, I um, use but it tell us hub. something we may not know about the land that, uh, would encourage, inspire others maybe to come visit or to learn a little bit more about it. Well, you mentioned it, Steve. Uh, the land has probably one of the most fantastic downtowns that you will find in, in anywhere in small town, what I call small town America. But around the land, you've got such complementary historical uh, comp, uh, attractions. And I'm going to give you an, a one, an example. Do you know that, and very few people know this, that there is a where we have currently have the Parks and Recreation Facility on Stone Street, used to be an old hospital. And there is a museum in there that has what that old hospital would have looked like. And to, to see what it, what it would have been, as well as there is an area there, we talked about Monticello, uh, as far as the, the, this slavery issue, but there's also an a, a outlying building there that we used to be confined just for the black population of the land. So, you know, is the historical discrimination that took place is you can identify in various areas 
Uh, and that is just a, it's a fascinating historical site to come visit. I would also encourage, we have the DeLand House, which is where uh, Henry DeLand, or I'm sorry, John B. Stetson lived. Uh, it's, and I, I had that wrong. It was, it's Stetson uh, House. John B. Stetson, that's where he lived. And as a matter of fact, one of the, the sites there is Thomas Edison ran electricity into that house. Uh, and so that they're open and they have Christmas tours. They have uh, other tours through the house to see, uh, you know, what it, what it looked like during the Stetson era. And so, you know, and Henry DeLand and John B. Stetson uh, were instrumental in creating Stetson University. Now, so, I know Flagler, I believe, uh, was the first place in Florida to get electricity, um, VC, DC power, uh, and Edison. Did, uh, are you saying Edison helped light the Stetson house? Yes. So I presume he did it with DC power, right? Well, you're beyond my uh, technological understanding, so I don't know. Okay. Well, you know, no, remember the big fight between him and Westinghouse over we're going to use AC versus yes. DC. Well, we all know who won that battle, right? Because now we use AC for uh, uh, powering. Uh, I'm just uh, curious about was it a was there a big battery generator outside uh, the Stetson house? Uh, I just I do not know. Well, you're going to have to find that out, and then you're going to have to read the book. Best book I have ever read, Last Days of Night. It's about the fight between Edison and Westinghouse for control of the electric grid. It's fascinating. Uh, one of the best stories about American history you will read if you like history. It's just their fights and why we have electrocution uh, as a means of put, uh, putting prisoners to death. Uh, the electric chair. Uh, it was came out of a stunt that that Edison had pulled, uh, just crazy stuff like that that still touches us literally every single day. You flip on a light switch, Westington Westinghouse won. <laughs> you know, I, I would so. say, Steve. You know, as a as Deland being as historically grounded and rooted as it is, but people who come here uh, for the commercial areas, you know, the downtown shopping the restaurants. So I would encourage anyone who has really not been to, to the land to come and spend, plan on spending a couple of days because you can go to the Cultural Arts Museum uh, just to walk through the Stetson University campus is a treat in and of itself. So uh, there's just so many things that people can do here that is enjoyable, not only it's for the full whole family. And if Stetson by chance either has a football or baseball game, you could take that in as well. And that definitely is Americana personified. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And uh, I got a trivia question for you. So uh, Michael Ploy, you're, you're, you're the person who stepped in after you left the city manager. I just saw him the other day and he wasn't wearing a Stetson. It's like one of the first times I've ever seen that. Now, when you were city manager, were you required to wear a Stetson at all times? <laughs> no, no, that, that, that's uh, unique to the, to the person, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike Abels, thank you so much for being on the show. I, I really appreciate your insights. I like taking a uh, local government from a different angle and kind of looking at some of those leadership characteristics a dream of mine would be to do what you did, maybe spend a summer working in the gardens at uh, at Monticello. It, it, Steve, I'd, I'd really uh, look forward to 
to a chance maybe to talk to you at another point about the, the relationship between Madison and Jefferson and how Madison evolved after the uh, the drafting of the Constitution. Be a oh, it's a, it is fascinating. I have a theory that Madison was such a weak-willed person. When Jefferson was out of the country, he became more of a federalist. When Jefferson came back home, he's like, dude, individual liberties, man. He's like, oh, yeah, 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 that's right. I, I forgot about those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've always, uh, it's been a, a subject of interest to me to how uh, Madison changed, you know, from the time that uh, he wa- wanted to basically strip uh, any kind of uh, authority away from the states and to have a veto, a federal veto over any state law uh, in the Virginia plan. And he had to give that up, but he kept evolving to where uh, he became more uh, Jeffersonian as time went on. Exactly. And it, it could be directly correlated to when, where Jefferson was and how Madison was. People still to this day, you know, attribute the state's rights to Madison, but you're right. It, at the Constitutional Convention, he introduced no state law goes into effect unless and until Congress approves it. Yeah. That was rejected by by overwhelming voice vote. So he reintroduced another one and says, well, okay, how about this? States can pass laws and they go into effect, but Congress has the ability to undo those state laws. Do a veto. By a yeah. veto. And they're like, dude, are you crazy? And when, of course, when Jefferson <laughs> found out about it, he's like, dude, what? I, I leave the country. I go party in France for a while. I try to start a revolution over there. I come back. What have you done? He's like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll do the Bill of Rights if you want me to. <laughs> well, folks, this is Steve Van Cor, and this has been a slightly different version of the FCCMA podcast, a service produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. Thank you so much for being with us.